to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Hebrew Christians are obviously in a situation of great pressure and great discouragement, perhaps of physical, mental, and spiritual distress. And they were therefore in great danger of faint-heartedness. They were in danger of slipping away. They were in danger of losing that perseverance that needs to mark the people of God in their spiritual pilgrimage. And so there were signs here and there of some of them beginning to falter in the midst of their Christian life and experience. And so the epistle to the Hebrews is really a word of exhortation, as he describes it himself towards the end of the epistle. This word of exhortation he has written. And the exhortation comes in many different forms. Let us go on, he pleads with them in chapter 6, for example. Here are people who are tending to get stuck and to slide back. And so he says, let us go on. Let us run in chapter 12 with perseverance the race that is set before us. All these exhortations, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Let us consider one another. And you get all of these exhortations to go on, an exhortation which is directed, obviously, to those who are inclined to fall back and to lose heart. But John Owen, the Puritan who comments on the Epistle to the Hebrews in many, many volumes, some of which I have uh, managed to obtain through the good offices of a kind friend not a hundred miles from here, um, he speaks of this epistle as one where there is not only exhortation, but dehortation. Now, do you see what he means? What he means by dehortation is warning. That is an exhortation to avoid something, a plea that they will take heed and come away from something that is going to be of danger to them in their spiritual situation. So the exhortations and dehortations are really encouragements and warnings. And the epistle to the Hebrews really is full of this. Encouragements on the one hand, let us run the race with perseverance that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now, that's the great encouragement, you see. But the warning is, again and again, take heed, take heed, lest this and this and this happen to you, happens to you. And we are in the midst of one of these warnings or dehortations. You get an example of it, for example, in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear, lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. Now, these warnings and these warning notes that go through the epistle of the Hebrews are really sounded, in this chapter especially, by a straightforward exposition of Scripture. And that's a very significant thing, you see. Here are these people who are clearly in the masterly diagnosis of the apostle who writes this letter. They are clearly in the midst of spiritual danger. 
they are in danger of a spiritual sickness overtaking them and incapacitating them. And what is the answer to this kind of spiritual sickness? Well, the medicine for it is to apply Holy Scripture to the sore. And that's exactly what he is doing. That's what this third chapter almost all contains. It is a quotation from Psalm 95 and an exposition of it and an application of it in the closest possible way. He takes the truth of this psalm and he presses it home to their heart and conscience. And this is what the warning really is. Now that remains universally true. And this is the way in which we need to approach all kinds of sicknesses of the soul. The one way to find God dealing with us in this sort of situation is to let him take Holy Scripture and apply it closely to our heart and life and emotion and affection and mind and thinking and conscience and will. And this is what the Apostle is doing precisely here. And the particular passage is this 95th Psalm which he quotes, and that in turn, that 95th Psalm, is a recollection of a period in Israel's history which we looked at last week, described in Exodus chapter 17, when they were in the wilderness. Now, the point of it is, of course, that the people that Hebrews is addressing are now in this day where the Israelites were in their day. That is, they are in a spiritual wilderness. And recognizing that, the apostle takes up this account of Israel in the wilderness in Psalm 95, where he speaks, for example, of how they hardened their hearts in the rebellion in the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, they are going through a day of testing, you see. He says, your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. And the point that he is laboring is this, that whereas God meant to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness, into the land of promise, into the land where his grace and love and power might have been known. Israel, by their disobedience, stuck in the wilderness and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now the warning of this particular passage is, take care lest your life becomes that kind of wilderness. That's the warning lest you are wandering in the wilderness like the people of Israel. Now, what was it that caused them to wander? Well, what caused them to wander was that they turned to the word of God, to the love of God and the blessing and grace of God that he had lavished upon them. In their redemption, they turned to that a hard, unbelieving heart. And that began to be evidenced in their murmuring, their rebellion, their unbelief. And they went into the wilderness for 40 years. And their sorry history is to be the Christian's solemn warning. Particularly, as we were saying last week at the end, a warning against hardness 
of heart. Now, when do we need to heed this warning? Well, the answer is in verse 15, today. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So whenever we hear God's voice, beloved, I think there is nothing more important this evening that we will need to ask God to write upon our spirits than this, that whenever, whatever the today may be, this day, whenever we hear God's voice, that he will save us from this dread spiritual sickness of turning a hard heart to the word of God. Now lest we be tempted not to take this warning with sufficient seriousness, he applies the warning more closely and as it were debates it with us in verses 16 to 19. There are, you will notice, three questions in these verses. One in verse 16, one in verse 17, and one in verse 18. And these three questions are answered in turn by questions. And this is really the language of true rhetoric. You know, the rhetorician uh, challenges people by asking questions and then by asking rhetorical questions, as we call them. And that's precisely what you get in verses 16, 17, and 18. And what he is saying, first of all, is this in verse 16. He is challenging them, applying the word more closely. Now, this, of course, is always what God is seeking to do. Who, he says, were these people who heard the word and yet rebelled against God? Who were these people in the wilderness who heard the word and yet rebelled? And the answer... Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? That is, was it not this whole generation of people over whom God had lavished his care, over whom he had yearned, for whom he had, he had sent Moses, whom he had loved and cared for? And they had spurned the grace of God and rebelled against his purpose and doubted his wisdom and failed to trust his ways. And the writer of the epistle is saying, do you see the warning of this? If it could have been such a privileged people who turned such a murmuring, rebelling spirit against God and his word in the midst of such lavish grace as he showed to them, then let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We who are a people of infinitely greater privilege, do we not need to take heed to this warning? We who have been redeemed by Christ's blood, are we not in similar danger? That's what he's saying. Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses who thus rebelled and turned a hard heart to the word of God? The second question, with whom was he provoked or grieved these 40 years? And the answer 
In a question form again, was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? The answer is that the people with whom God was grieved were these very people who had been brought out of Egypt, who were the recipients of his grace, and their lives displayed such manifest rebellion and disobedience and unbelief that God made them an example. And the example he made was an example of judgment. And their corpses lay in the wilderness. Now that is a word of warning, you see. That the God who entreated and blessed and loved and cared for this people, when they persisted in their rebellion, God who had seen them as a singular example of his grace, made them an equally singular example of his judgment by pouring out his wrath upon them. And there is a warning note here. Do you notice how through the epistle to the Hebrews you get this constant balance between entreaty and warning, between encouragement coming from God's grace and faithfulness and sovereignty on the one hand, and warning about God's judgment and anger with his people on the other. And I am bound to say to you this evening, my dear Christian friends, that this is a note that we need to pay heed to. That if we persist in rebellion against God, in a self-will that continues to defy him, a spirit that continues to murmur against him, we will provoke the anger of God upon us. And that's a solemn thing and a serious thing, and God means to use it to urge us to fear. Do you notice the beginning of chapter 4? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. And the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is not afraid to use this whole category of fear, which is a thing that we ourselves have tended to be afraid of. And of course, there is a kind of fear that is an unhealthy thing, but there is a healthy fear of God and a healthy fear of God's judgments which in this epistle are very real. To whom, thirdly, he asks, to whom, the first question, who were these people? They were the privileged people. With whom was he provoked these 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and their very carcasses in the wilderness were an evidence of God's judgment upon them? To whom did he swear? that they should never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Now do you notice that what he is speaking about is God going on oath to these people. God's oath is given primarily as a security, of course, to believers. The primary reason God goes on oath is to provide for his people security and an absolute solidity 
to build all their hope upon. I have sworn by my name, says God. He is a God who goes on covenant with his people. And we sing his oath, his covenant and blood. Support me in the whelming flood. But here, do you notice, God's oath is a warning against unbelief. To whom did he swear that they should never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, you see, I think that what God is saying here to us is this, that he is a God whose oath is sure, whose words are sure. Our God is a God who never utters an idle word. And that's a very important thing to grasp when you're reading the Bible and knowing God applying his word to your life. He never utters an idle word, never an idle promise. Now, men utter idle promises. We're all the time doing that, aren't we? I promised I would bring Mrs. Murray an address or ring her with it, and when I met her this evening, discovered that I hadn't done it and I'd left it at home. We're all the time making promises that either through forgetfulness or the weakness of the flesh or something of the kind we don't keep. God never makes an idle promise. But listen, God never utters an idle threat either. Have you ever been in a home where the mother will say to the fractious, disobedient child, if you do that again, I'll do this? You get that frequently, don't you? If you do that, I'll do this. And the child goes on a little further. You're knowing how far they can go. And then the mother says again, Now I've told you for the last time, if you do that again, I'll do this. And the child knows perfectly well the mother's never going to do that, you know. Because it's an idle threat. But you know, the solemn thing about reading such passages of Scripture as this is that God never utters idle threats. He is faithful to his promises, and he is absolutely faithful to his threats too. And it's an important thing for us to grasp that. To whom did he go on oath that they would never enter his rest? It was to those who were disobedient. Now, the conclusion of the whole matter is, so we see that they were unable to enter because of Unbelief. If you have an authorized version, you will notice that at the end of um, verse 18, the oath that God swears is to them that believed not. God's oath is a warning then against unbelief. And it's very significant that it is unbelief uh, again and again which is mentioned here and on which emphasis is laid. And unbelief, have you noticed in chapter 3 as well as into chapter 4, unbelief is clearly regarded with a seriousness which is almost unfamiliar to us. We tend to regard unbelief as a kind of amiable weakness. But unbelief in Scripture is associated with an evil heart. You notice that in chapter four, verse, chapter 3, verse 12, for example. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart. Just as the secret of perseverance you see in victory of that gallery of men in chapter 11 of Hebrews is faith. By faith Abraham did this. By faith Moses. By faith these men became the kind of men who brought the smile of God upon their lives. So the key to the failure of Israel is unbelief. And these two things are set over against each other. The men of faith triumphed because they believed God. The people of Israel failed to enter into the rest that God had prepared for them because of unbelief. And unbelief is essentially defined here as disobedience. It is not just, you see, an unwillingness to accept certain facts as true. It is a moral issue, unbelief. And unbelief is an unwillingness to take God at his word. And you can see how serious a thing it is in scripture because it is a slander against God's name. It's a slander against God's integrity. You'll have met children who'll have said, ah, but she doesn't really mean it, you know. I've heard children in a home where these threats were being poured out and they will say to one another, ah, it's all right, she doesn't really mean it. And this is exactly what we are saying when we do not take God at his word. We are slandering his name and his character. And therefore unbelief is a moral issue of a heart which is set against God and against his word. Now that's why sin, you see, is described in these categories. This is precisely what was happening in the Garden of Eden. When God gave his word to man, he had given him his pledge and promise that all of this lavish display was his and he was to take it all, but there was one tree that he was not to touch, because in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And by his action, man defied God's word. He lived in unbelief. Now that's what it is to live in unbelief. It is to live as though God had either not said what he had said, or didn't mean what he had said. As though God were a liar, you see. Now when God has set down in his word a whole pattern of life for us as his children. To live outside of that pattern is to live in unbelief. To live by some other criterion than by the criterion of Holy Scripture is to live in unbelief. And that's the seriousness of this evil heart of unbelief. And it does become a hard thing. Because you have to get your heart hardened if you're going to live in resistance to God. It's the only possible way of doing it. You have to build a barricade around your heart. And the continuing sin of Israel, you see, was the same. They would not take God at his word. And they kept saying to Moses, Now why have you brought us here? Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt? Would to God we were back in Egypt again with our brothers. Now it's very significant that what both Adam and Eve 
in the garden and Israel in the wilderness forfeited by their unbelief was rest. And that's a very important thing for the next part of this passage because that rest for Adam and Eve was the rest of fellowship with God. For the children of Israel, it was the rest of entering into Canaan, into the land of God's promise. And again and again here, they did not enter into this place of rest. And it's very significant that when man has sinned and he is turned out of the Garden of Eden, he is turned out to be a wanderer. And in the person of Cain, you see, there is this sense of a restless wandering over the face of the earth. He was condemned to this and he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear because he had lost the rest of fellowship with God. Now that rest is what God is promising. It is another picture, of course, of salvation in all its glory and fullness. We've had several pictures of salvation so far in Hebrews. We've had the picture of a redemption out of the bondage of fear of death and Satan. That's one picture of what salvation means. Another picture of salvation is in this picture of rest. And here, the children of Israel did not enter into this rest, verse 18, because they were disobedient. They were unable to enter because of unbelief for the Christian. This rest is the eternal Sabbath of which chapter 4 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and before that the glorious rest that remains here for the people of God to which Jesus invited us when he said come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest now it's a significant thing that unbelief engenders and produces unrest. Have you noticed that both in scripture and in experience? And the reason is, of course, that the biblical idea of rest is finding utter security in God. It is the enjoyment of perfect harmony between the creature and the creator. So biblical rest, which is another picture, as I say, of salvation, is rest in God. And this is what God is preparing for his people. This rest, then, is not a negative thing of which he's going to go on to speak in chapter 4. While the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. It's not a negative thing, neither is it mere inactivity, nor is it a rest in the sense of absence from trouble. Rest in Scripture is always rest in God. Now, chapter 4 presses upon us a warning about failing to enter in to the fullness of, of that rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. 
The promise in verse 1 is the promise which remains for the believer. And here again you have an illustration of another way that we are taught in Hebrews to think about the relation between the Old Testament and the New. You may remember if you were here at the beginning of our studies in Hebrews, I was saying that several times you get different ways of thinking about the relation between Old and New Testaments. Sometimes it's the relation of shadow to reality. Here it is the relation between promise and fulfillment. Now the relation that the Old Testament has to the New is again and again this. Sometimes the direct word of promise Frequently, the whole picture of God's dealings with his people, the whole redemption out of Egypt, for example, the significance of all God's dealings with his people in the history that followed that, the way that God was calling out a people for himself, that's all promise of something that is going to be absolutely fulfilled in Christ. Now you will notice the final fulfillment of this promise of rest is found in Christ and so it's of great significance that this promise is fulfilled when Jesus stands up and says come to me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest while we still have this promise he says the rest is in Christ and ultimately the fulfillment of that of course is in the heavenly Sabbath that still remains for us. Now notice that what prevented the Israelites entering the land of rest again was their relation to the message they heard. And this is a recurring note in this warning passage. In verse 2, for example, for good news came to us, or if you have the authorized version, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now that's a very significant thing in which we could spend a lot of time. That here is the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews saying that the same gospel which was preached to us was preached to them. God preached the gospel to Abraham, the same gospel of grace, the same gospel of grace was preached to the people of Israel, of redemption through blood. And they had the gospel preached to them, do you notice? Now he says that is what made them a people of inestimable privilege. That the gospel came to them. But, beloved, he says, the gospel has come to us. Do you see? And the real issue is, what does the message the message of a God of grace meet with in my heart. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message which they heard did not benefit them because it did not meet with faith in the hearers. The authorized version has got that lovely phrase, the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now you see, the fear which he encourages us to have is a fear lest we may not enter into the rest that God has remaining for his people 
because we have received the message of God's word in some other way than with faith, with belief. Now, let me press upon you again that this belief is not simply an acceptance of truth. It is not saying, oh yes, I believe the Bible and I accept that as being God's word cover to cover and so on. That's not what receiving the word in faith means, beloved. Receiving the word in faith means that I rise up with all my being to welcome the word of God, to let it be the sword of the Spirit of which he speaks in verse 12, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now you see this word that he has been wielding from Psalm 95 does precisely that but you know that it is possible even to turn a hardened heart to that kind of word that God has been speaking to them, pleading today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as they did in that day. But it's possible for us to sit in a place like this and to have a heart that is hardened, turned, towards the word of God and the writer of this epistle is, is leading us to see that there is infinite loss involved in that now some people have asked what is the loss that he is speaking about is this an eternal loss is he then saying that if we disregard the word of God that is if we do not meet it with faith then we are in danger of losing our eternal salvation. Well, now, you know the answer to that question, don't you, from Scripture. But what I want to say to you is this, that that's not the right question to ask at this point. The right question to ask is this, Lord, how can I take this warning seriously enough? If God has gone on oath, warning us about turning an evil heart of unbelief to his word, then the great question I have to ask is, Lord, am I turning that kind of heart to your word? If men of privilege like these did it, am I turning this kind of heart to your word? And we need to recognize that the loss that God is speaking of here is real. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message which they heard did not benefit them because it did not meet with faith in the hearers. We are therefore to fear. Now verses 3 to 5 assures, assure us that through faith in God and his word and promises, it is possible to enter into rest. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now that's rather a difficult 
sentence or two to understand. What he is really saying is this, and it, it really is an important thing to grasp. If God is still warning us about the possibility of not entering rest, then there is a rest, positively, which we may enter. If he has warned us, take heed lest you lose this, there is then a rest which we are yet to enter, and there is a picture of that rest. Indeed, there is a threefold picture of it that God has given. The picture of this rest, which God calls us to and holds before us, is seen first of all in the creation rest of God. Do you notice? For he has somewhere spoken, verse 4, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, that's Psalm 95, he said, They shall never enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. You see, the warning that some will not enter it bespeaks the fact that there is a rest that we are to enter by faith, which they will lose by unbelief. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day. Do you notice? There is another day God has set. Today, saying through David in Psalm 95, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, now this is the importance of it being Joshua rather than Jesus, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. Canaan, you see, was a picture of this rest. Creation was a picture of it, that God rested from his labors on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was satisfied. He beheld his creation and saw that it was all very good, and God rested from his labors because he was satisfied with all that he has done. And the rest that God brings his people into is a satisfaction with God. Now, my dear friends, that's the great integrating factor in personalities that are in need and are disturbed. It is a satisfaction in God that is the ultimate thing. That's the key to Christian rest of a subjective kind. And do you notice that whenever people are trying to find their rest someplace else, they become restless? There are so many restless Christian souls. And why are they restless? It's because they're seeking their rest and satisfaction outside of God. And we sing away, now none but Christ can satisfy, but we live as though it were not true. Is that really the basis of salvation? Is that what salvation has done for you? It has made you find your satisfaction in God. Now that's what creation rest is all about, you see. And it was what Canaan rest was going to be like for the people of God. 
He had prepared this land for them. And you can almost see God getting excited, describing it to them. A land flowing with milk and honey, he says. You've never seen anything like this. Press on, my children, he says, and get to it. And halfway there, when little things began to go wrong, they began to murmur. And they said, we know a better way of living and of finding water than God's way. Would that we were back in Egypt. Do you see what's wrong? They are not finding their satisfaction in God. Creation rest is a picture of this. Canaan rest is a picture of it. The Sabbath rest is another picture of it. Do you notice? So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest also ceases from his labors as God did from his. Now, the Christian Sabbath, the Sabbath institution, in fact, the, the institution of Sabbath in Scripture, is a picture of this, of, of the rest that remains to the people of God. What is the Sabbath for? as we call it. Well, the Sabbath bears witness to two things. It bears witness to the gospel because it tells us that as God ceased from his labors, man has to cease from his labors in order that he might find salvation wholly in God's grace. And that's what the Sabbath rest bears witness to. It bears witness to a gospel of saving grace. God ceased from his labors. We cease from our labors. But it bears witness to something else. As God ceased from his labors, whoever enters God's rest also ceases from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. And I am sure that these interpreters are right who say that that ceasing from our own works is the kind of ceasing from the works of the flesh, from self-will, from self-pleasing, so that we find our rest in pleasing him. And the Sabbath bears witness to that, a heart at leisure from itself. To soothe and sympathize. Now do you see why the Sabbath is such an important institution therefore? And the Lord's Day takes over this from the Old Testament doctrine of the Sabbath. That's why it's such a great pity incidentally that in certain areas of our own land, and I, I, I say this I hope discreetly, but I think it is a great pity that Sabbatarianism has become such a cold and ugly kind of thing so that you get the impression that the only thing that people are interested in is that you get the Sabbatarian habit and keep the Sabbath even although you're slandering your neighbors and gossiping about everybody in the village and doing everything under the sun that wrecks people's character. It doesn't matter so long as you keep the Sabbath and don't go for a walk on the Sabbath day or don't do this, that or the other. You know, I remember being brought up in some of these extraordinary things. The extraordinary thing I do remember still, I'm sure I must have told you this, that it, it was a tradition in my grandmother's family that one of the things you never did on the Sabbath day was to cut your nails. 
I don't know exactly where they got that or which Talmudic reference it came from, but that was one of the things you never did. You never whistled on the Sabbath day, you know. I remember going up Springburn Road as a little boy on a Sunday, all by myself, and starting to whistle at the top of my voice, and what a devil I thought I was being. <laughs> because there was this strict principle, you never whistled on the Sabbath day. But, oh, beloved, the Sabbath is something infinitely bigger and greater and more glorious than this. It bespeaks the fact of a God of grace who is proclaiming his gospel because we cease from our labors on this day and glory in a God who is our satisfaction and joy. Worship him. Take our time and come into his presence and glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in this day as those who have ceased from their labors and want to live in obedience to him, a day of faith. Now I think that the way that many Christian people spend the Lord's day makes it difficult for them to have that kind of day. And I think we need to rethink the way we spend the Lord's day, you know, not make it the Lord's half day. The Lord's day in all its rich fullness. This is the Sabbath rest that remains to the people of God. But there is another Sabbath. There is the creation Sabbath. There is the Canaan Sabbath. There is the weekly Sabbath. And that is a picture of the rest that God gives to his children. But there is the eternal Sabbath. And that probably is what the apostle means when he says... There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God yet remaining. And that is the Sabbath rest in glory when we shall in that ultimate sense cease from all other labor except the labor of worshiping and glorying in him. That's the Sabbath rest in the new Jerusalem to which those who have gone from our midst have now entered and they are in that eternal Sabbath in glory. But, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Is that a contradiction in terms? Striving to enter rest by trying to get to sleep. You know, have you ever tried that? Appalling business when you can't get to sleep and you're striving to get to sleep and to get over striving to enter rest. Now, the reason he says that's very interesting. You see, the rest that the people of God experience is not an, an inactive, passive kind of rest. The people of God who were redeemed out of the land of Egypt and given the promise of the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, oh, what a land, says God to them. Now, how did they get into that land? Under Joshua? How did Joshua take them into that land? I'll tell you how he took them. He took them through conflict, through pressure, through every kind of experience of onslaught and assault from the enemy. And it seemed again and again as if all the powers of darkness were let loose against them. They strove to enter. Now, he says to these beleaguered people of God, you strive to enter that rest. Go on, he says, persevere. And in God's name you will find that he who gave rest to his people 
Do you remember how you read often in these Old Testament historical passages, the Lord gave them rest round about. Well, that same Lord will give you victory after victory because it's really only a matter of time until you enter that rest, living by faith, living in glad obedience. Lord, give us this rest. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. That's the way to live, beloved. And there is no other potion for the soul like that. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.